You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions today. I've got Shrubbery Capital, so you can find him on Twitter at um, Agnostock, so A-G-N-O-S-T-O-Triple-X. So he is a, he's a portfolio manager. He ro- pretty much runs his own fund at this point. So thank you so much for being on the podcast, Shrubbery. It's awesome to have you here. It's so great to be here. Uh, I'm a big fan of the show, and uh, I'm very flattered uh, to be here because you had so many great guests uh, lately. I don't know how I can... Uh, I don't think I can top it in terms of intellectuality, but maybe I can just top it in terms of uh, being a bit fun. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and, you know, speaking of fun, so today, you know, we're doing this on the 5th of May. And so today, you know, the NASDAQ is down a nice 5%. So, and, and yesterday we had the Fed meeting. So, you know, what was your take when you saw, uh, when you saw Powell and, um, and, and, you know, when it comes to days like this, so how do you think about managing trades and looking for opportunity? So um, I was very, very chilled because I have a big cash position and you can see me, the fact that we're doing this uh, on a down 5% day on the fifth day of the fifth month of the year uh, shows me that um, I'm well positioned. (laughs) So so the way I see it is, uh, you know, we, we can get through a lot of lessons that I'm trying to share online as well. Just, uh, you know, just, just to be kind of the voice of reason, you know, uh, you know, every king has a jester and the jester is a guy who's telling him the truth. So I'm the Twitter's shrub. I kind of like try to tell them the truth to, to keep them, keep some, some people safe during this upcoming bear market. So the way I approach things like the Fed meeting is very simple. I don't know anything about what the Fed is going to do. I don't know. And if I don't know what the Fed is going to do, and I know that people are nervous, I just raise my cash positions to a point where I'm very comfortable. And uh, I just sit back because you know what? I don't like to take binary risks when that's not my game. That's not my game. So I just sit back. So I want to take, I want to take risks from a position of strength. And from a position where the risk reward is in my favor and from a position where I don't need to stress about it. Like yesterday, I, I, was, I was even thinking of not watching Powell. So I just put a tiny call option on just, just so I sit and watch the guy. Um, and look, w- when you have a three-hour view of the world, like most fund managers, you get sucked in. You see the guy... Um, you know, you, you see the guy saying, oh, we are, so the CNBC guy asks him, so Mr. Powell, will you consider 75 bips rate rise? And he says, no. And like, we all knew it, right? The whole market knew that he wouldn't do a 75 bips rate rise on the next meeting. But suddenly the algos pick it up and they say, oh, this is very dovish, oh, blah, 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 blah. So the market is up 3%, sucks everyone in. And then the next day they read the actual press releases, the actual news, playback. And everyone's like, oh, my God, he's still going to do 50 bips. He's still going to do QT. And then, boom, the market's down 5%. So basically, the guys who bought yesterday up three are selling it down five. So my lesson out of this is you have to be, we're not in the market um, where, you have, where you should allow yourself to be emotional or too involved or too short-term because, you know, you need to survive out of this. And actually... You're very lucky, and uh, you know. I mean, I'll, I'll try and give my worthless advice to you as we're going along. But um, I was—I uh, lived through 2000, so you're 18 years old, right? Yeah. So you are very lucky that you're going to go through this bear market when you're 18, instead of when you're, you know, 30 or 40, when you're going to be more confident and more arrogant, and you're going to be running a lot of money. So. You know, my advice to you is go through it, live it. I mean, you're, I mean, you're very involved and you're really switched on. So you have to live, it through, live through it, lose a bit of money as well. It's probably going to be better for you personally to lose money in this bear market. <laughs> so when you grow up, you take the lessons with you. 
Um, but look, the setup of the current market is just, it's probably one of the worst setups I've seen um, because nowhere is safe. I think the best call I've made on Twitter and personally, and you know, for my, uh, um, for the account I'm managing was six months ago where I, uh, or in September, where I started thinking that this looks a lot like the seventies in some way, that it has a potential to be a stagflationary environment. And, um, and you know, back when I left uh, my old fund, I threw away all the research I had. And the only piece of paper I kept on my desk was the returns per asset class in the 70s. Because the 70s was like the toughest market to navigate. It wasn't 08, it wasn't 2000, it was the 70s. Even Buffett was down 50% in 74. And in the 70s, the market, everything collapsed but energy outperformed and real estate outperformed because it was a stagflationary environment driven by, you know, the oil embargo didn't help. So I kept that on my desk. I tweeted that out in September. And then I actually was seeing the tightness in the energy market. So I went long energy. I mean, I was long from before, but I increased my energy allocation and my commodity allocation. And then um, obviously when the unfortunate invasion of uh, Ukraine happened, you know, that was the real kick to, to kickstart a stagflationary environment. And I was, you know, very certain because Europe is short energy, short commodities. So Europe was definitely going to go into a stagflationary environment. Um, and having that position on inside, so I had, uh, you know, I tweeted out, I mean, I live tweeted my portfolio allocations and, you know, I was 50, 60% long uh, energy and commodities. I had uh, some special sits, I had cash, and I was fully hedged against tech. So, you know, that trade kind of helped me survive up to this point. Um, with the NASDAQ down 20%, because the volatility of the NASDAQ was a bit too much, uh, and I, I like to sleep well, you know, I removed my short, foolishly maybe, uh, but I increased my cash position. Um, so I, the way I offset my hedges, I see cash as my hedge. And I have learned this after years of complex analysis and, and losing a lot of money that the best hedge you can have is actually cash. And uh, this is not something that hedge funds can do. And it's, it's a painful lesson to learn, but I'm going to repeat it probably 10 times in the next hour we're together that you know, cash is a hedge. It gives you optionality. The way you should think about it is like, imagine an 09, Imagine if you were cashed up in 09, how much money you could have made in 2010. So it's the same thing here. You just have to have the cash, keep them on the side. And it's just very, very difficult for an excitable young man with, you know, driven by testosterone to, to uh, you know, to not deploy the cash while the market is going down. And, you know, this thing can last for two years. And this is the part that most people have have trouble understanding that, um, you know, sorry for going all along this way, but, you know, think about it this way, because, you know, you work with Mike Green, who's like an amazing person and, you know, super smart. I have so much respect yeah. for him. Um, and also the fact that he recognized your potential shows that, you know, he's a, he's a value investor as well. <laughs> so, so, you know, you guys have like, I'm actually no, not joking that, you know, the fact that uh, he took you under his wing as well just shows that it's a great guy and sees potential in people. Um, so, you know, you had a trillion dollars of inflows since COVID. So that's a lot of money <laughs> last time I checked. And you've had 30 billion of outflows in two weeks. So that tells me if you unwind the whole thing, man, that can take a long time. But I don't think it unwinds the whole thing because the Fed always pivots eventually. But who knows, right? It can last three months. It can last six months. It can last 12 months. We don't know. My philosophy in life is, I don't know. You have to basically, you know, I'm going to, you know, channel your inner shrub. <laughs> you just don't know. You, you cannot know certain things. You know, you don't know where, you know, you, you don't know how, how long uh, the bad weather is going to last or something, right? Certain things you just can't predict. So you just have to make uh, contingency plans and preparations. And that's why, you know, I like cash at this point in time. Um, but again, 
I'll just mention one thing here about the, the temptation, because after all the years, uh, you know, I've been in this industry for uh, 16 years now. Um, the biggest lesson you will learn is to just control your emotions and be patient. And it's very, very difficult to do that. Very difficult. Um, and um, one of the best books, if not the best book on investing that I recommend to people, bizarrely, um, is Dostoevsky's The Gambler, which um, it, it just encompasses, it, it beautifully captures this gambling instinct that a lot of fund managers have when their adrenaline is high. And that's the part that you need to suppress. It's, it's when, you know, the guy sits on the roulette table and he just keeps playing and he keeps winning. And, you know, he's like, oh, I, I, could, leave, I could leave the table now. But actually, no, one more, one more roll of the dice, you know, one more roll of the roulette table. So it's like, it's exactly the same thing. It's like one more YOLO, one more YOLO, one more YOLO. <laughs> so it's like, you, yeah. it's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's, it's just like, that's why, you know, the last few weeks, you know, my trade, long commodities, short the rest, it's been working well. I've had to suppress my emotions to take it down from 100% down to 60% and just, you know, sit, sit back a bit. Can it last another 10 years? Yeah, of course it can. That's why I'm still 60% in it. But you just have to, you know, control your emotions, sit back. I mean, if, if I was going to do it five years ago, I would have been levered two times doing it, <laughs> not like in cash. So, um, yeah, long story short, we're in a very tough uh, market. It pays to be in cash. Complexity is a killer. Uh, as I say, keep it simple, shrub, kiss. And then just, uh, you know, just, just sit back and, you know, enjoy life as well. You know, it's a reopening. You know, you, you're going to have a great summer with a reopening. So sit back, chill, position yourself that you enjoy your time with your family and your friends in the summer. And uh, don't stress about it. You know, we could be down 20, 30% from here. Um, and, uh, you know, just, just the last thing that um, uh, just to kill the myth of the buy and hold crowd, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but, you know, they always say, oh, if you missed the 10 best days of the year, you would have made 100% instead of 800%. But, you know, they don't tell you if you missed the 10 worst days. If you missed the 10 worst days, well, one, you might be uh, out of business, <laughs> or two, you did, you did a lot worse. So, so that's why, do I care about the buy, buy and hold? No, it's not my style. I don't really care, to be honest. And yeah, and I, I will be sure to check out um, Dostoevsky's um, The Gambler. Um, and you know, speaking of commodities, I mean, I just to just to start off with, so you know, your base case is stagflation, right? And um, we can tell that from your Twitter. Your Twitter name is Shrubbery Stagflation Capital, and yeah, and so and so when <laughs> and so when it comes to sort of like the Federal Reserve's policy, so is there a point where you would get scared about a demand shock when it comes to commodities? Yeah, so let, let's let's stick to commodities because it's it, it's just a very fascinating setup. Uh, you know, bear in mind I'm a generalist by background, but I have spent uh, years in the commodity space. Uh, 2007, eight. You know, I've been to China around uh, mines. I've been underground, so I, I know a few things, but I'm not a specialist. So commodities. Um, are a very strange beast because it's not a great asset class in some ways. It's very cyclical. Um, and, it, and it was really driven by China from 2000 to 2007. And now I think, uh, and, um, and ap you know, after the China slowdown, people uh, kind of gave up on it in some way. And COVID was a bit of a wake up that the, to, to start something called the you know, decarbonization um, and the energy transition. So it was always there, but I mean, COVID kickstarted the whole thing. Um, so the strange, so you have commodities and energy. So I'm gonna talk about both. Commodities are a bit easier to understand because it's driven by China in some way. So half of the world's copper goes to China, half the world's this, half the world's that, half the world's this. Like China, 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 right? So that's it. Oil is a bit different because it, it's a proportional to GDP. So China is like less than 20%. Uh, 
Um, so commodities have gone through starvation of capital for a, for a while now. And so I'm going to start with that. So the starvation of capital happened partly because of ESG, and that was specifically for the energy side. So ESG basically forced banks to reduce lending. It forced fund managers to reduce capital allocation, and it forced companies to become uh, to reduce certain projects, uh, and also also increased a lot of um, uh, protest by the green, you know, by by. Uh, green uh, organize, what do you call it, uh, uh, environmental organizations and the environmental standards have heightened a lot. So you had starvation of capital from ESG, but you also had strict, stricter regulation. Um, so put that together, plus China slowing down because the big buildup of China happened really between 2000 and 2007, that was a big one. Yeah. Uh, and then the stimulus of the, from the GFC. So put, that, put all that together and you had this, um, you know, this starvation of capital. But in the energy space, it was actually even worse. I think like, I think the missing capex in energy was like a trillion dollars over the last uh, 10 years or something that was cut. Uh, I mean, if you want the, you know, the prime example of this was BP. You know, BP stopped investing in oil. They had a 700 uh, people exploration team. They fired them all down to 100 and they told them to go and uh, work on wind farms. I mean, it's like madness, you know, they're just shifting down uh, you know, just shrinking down and just focusing on green. Um, so you have this setup where you have a starved industry, slow down, um, no one cares. And then suddenly you have COVID and you have the energy transition. So that's a bullish theme that comes on top. And, um, and then you have on top of it, you have the Russia, the Ukraine war. And that was, that was the big moment that squeezed a lot of bottlenecks in there. Um, so, because as China is a consumer of 50% of everything, Russia was a producer of 20% of everything in, in some ways, like nickel. So you created a further squeeze on that. So, so you have this price increases and everything. Now, the... The thing about um, uh, the thing about that, a lot of people that were not invested before in mining, they 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 don't understand. They took the Russia Ukraine thing as a one off, and I didn't see it like that. I saw it that Russia did something terrible, you know, atrocities, and those and Russia is going to be sanctioned. Like you look at the previous sanctions around the world, Iran since 1979, Venezuela 2014, North Korea forever. So these sanctions on Russia could stay for a long time. And they could get extended not only because people say, well, China's gonna buy the Russian thing. Well, actually maybe, maybe the, the sanctions become even stronger. So, so you have tightness, you have a lot of tightness in supply and demand was so far driven by uh, the reopening and energy transition. Now, this is, this is the current setup. So just to summarize, because uh, uh, you have a supply without investment and you have demand from a big thing. And sorry, and you have sh supply shock as well. Now, just let me just step back one second. So, People tell me, well, it's not going to be a super cycle because I'm still invested in this, right? I'm invested in this is the part of the cycle. I have like 60% of my portfolio is still energy commodities. So this is the part of the cycle that I would actually sell everything because these are cyclical commodities. I mean, there's a cyclicality in these things. So I lived through 08 and I was long mining in 07, 08, but, you know, this is, but you know, we sold everything before shit hit the fan because we were short uh, subprime at the time. We kind of saw the demand destruction approaching. And back in 08, there were bottlenecks in the oil price. Oil went from to 150. So the market was collapsing. We had Bear Stearns. We had Bear Stearns and oil still went to 150. So I was, I'm playing here for the same kind of scenario as 08, because now the tightness I see in the markets is worse than a weight. 
So you have a very strange situation where you have worse bottlenecks than await, in some, in some cases much worse. And we are fearing about, and we're fearing about demand, but we're not seeing the demand destruction yet. So my bare case is demand destruction, like await. So now I'm seeing it this way. Shanghai is still closed. Right. They have to reopen. It's the first thing. Um, the Fed has tightened, but come on. I mean, we have inflation of 8% and we have rates of like 1%. It's like, it's a joke. It's not like tightened already. Um, and then the big theme. Let's do the big theme. Because again, I'm challenged on the super cycle theory, which I'm not even sure it's going to be a super cycle, but I'm, I'm still invested. So I'm, in, I'm exploring because no one's actually saying that there could be another super cycle. So let, let's put it this way. The last super cycle I lived through was China, which there was the urbanization of China from 2000 to 2007. And that cost $15 trillion. Um, if we decarbonize, which is, I think it's in everyone's interest to decarbonize, and we do the energy transition, the shift to electric vehicles, then Goldman's estimates that decarbonization to cost one China for this decade and two Chinas if you include the next decade. So you're talking about $30 trillion of investment in the next 20 years. If you do that, we need, we need, let me see how much we need. We need, I have, what UBS estimated to be two times the current level of nickel demand. So nickel demand, two times the current level of production, copper, one and a half times the current level of production, cobalt three times and lithium 11 times. And the deficits, you hit them from 2023 to 2024. Okay, so we're not talking about like science fiction. Yeah. And this is assuming we don't have a deep recession, okay? So the only thing that saves us is actually a deep recession. <laughs> this is the paradox that we would actually, the only way we can kill the super cycle is if we actually just say, you know what? We shouldn't buy Teslas this year. We should keep our old car going. So we basically say, you know, let's just put a pause in the decarbonization. And, you know, let, let, let's, let's, uh, let's add a few uh, other uh, uh, Twitter characters in the equation. So there, there's a very smart, smart uh, marsupial that's on Twitter. He tweets, he's actually a marsupial that can tweet. His name is uh, uh, the yellow, uh, Koala at, at Yellow Lab. So um, he said, he presented a theory called the eucalyptus paradox, whereby the paradox is that we need all these metals, but we refuse to mine them. <laughs> Right. And if you, so you basically go and see what, you know, every administration in the world is doing. And they say, you know, they say, oh, we need lithium. It's like, okay, well, are you going to give a permit for lithium? Or it's like, oh, we need uranium. It's like, well, hold on. You have a massive deposit in Virginia and you just banned mining uranium in Virginia. Or, you know, we need copper. It's like, well, when was the last time you give the, give, gave a copper permit? So this is the eucalyptus paradox. It's basically that we need all this stuff but no one's doing anything about it. And we expect Africa to go and do it. Now I'm going to introduce my theory, my new theory that I've been thinking about, and I will present it uh, for the first time to your audience. <laughs> so this is like a, a world first to, which is going to um, uh, supplement the eucalyptus paradox. And I'm going to call it, I, I, I've been thinking a lot about this. So, so, so bear with me. I'm going to call it shrubs, Commodity cycle climate conundrum. <laughs> or maybe That's I'm going to call it. <laughs> yeah, or maybe I'm going to call it shrubs commodity climate conundrum. And just stay with me for one second, because I've been thinking about this. <laughs> so the climate is long term trend, right? The climate is a long term trend. Weather is a short term phenomenon. So the commodity cycles are like climate like 10, 15 years long, the, you know, China urbanization, 10 years, decarbonization, 20 years. So to build a copper mine, you need 10 years 
to build an offshore project, you need five to 10 years. So if you're going to feed the demand for that cycle, you need to plan 10 years ahead. Uh, yeah. But look at the investors of these companies. They're short-term, some passive. You know, this is not a big part of passive. It's 3% of the index. So to Mike Green's, you know, you, got, you guys know all about the passive, but it's only a 3% of the market. And private equity is not doing anything because, oh, this is too volatile. And the people are investing is like hedge funds that have monthly issues, quarterly redemption, blah, 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 blah. Private equity is not invested because, you know, this is a, because commodities are too volatile. You know, the, the weather, the weather, so the daily price moves of commodities are very, very volatile. You know, they go up and down 20, 30% a year. So this is the commodity climate conundrum. How can you have short-term oriented investors looking that are only focusing on the weather and their Christmas bonus, make rational decisions for the long-term and the benefit of the world in some way? The only way you solve the conundrum is when you have you know, an external force, a policymaker to step in and fill that gap that just basically says, and then, and then this is actually what China did. The only country that did that was China and actually maybe Norway as well in some way, because they had the, you know, China said, we're gonna invest in this mine in Africa. Well, they did the Belt and Road, uh, they invested a lot in African mines. Um, so China actually did this right. They were centrally bland, planned. They realized that there's no, uh, that they're short commodities. So they actually tried to solve shrubs <laughs> commodity climate conundrum. Now, that's one thing. What about the Western world? It looks like our politicians are not doing anything about it. Our politicians are actually dealing with the eucalyptus paradox. You know, they want the commodities, but they're not actually, but they refuse to mine them. And then where do we come to? And this is my, I, I, I tweeted that prediction jokingly, but it came true. The only way you're going to fix this only two the only way is if industry fills the gap and i was like if if elon musk is short lithium he should fund the lithium project so i tweeted jokingly half jokingly that you know elon musk is gonna end up buying lithium projects to build himself because no one else is doing it and he tweeted out it's like oh my god you know we're short lithium there's so much lithium in the world you know maybe we should invest in you know invest in lithium mines so this is where we are we're in a very interesting situation whereby we're all concerned about today and i think as i said today based on the current situation commodities are just a supply bottleneck because of russia but actually demand looks like it's going to roll over and when demand rolls over commodities get killed so short term i could get killed on my positions but actually the conundrum is still there. You know, who's going to build all these things? So this is the very, very interesting situation we're in in the commodity market. Um, and, you know, one, and uh, it's very, very tough. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's exciting. It, it is exciting. And so would you, so you sort of talked about how there's a broader commodity super cycle and then you know people are being focused on the weather versus well, what's actually going to play out over uh, over you know longer term. And you know when it, when it comes to you know I think one one thing that you mentioned was you're a generalist. So when it comes to some sort of specific niche um, like commodities or natural resources, so how does a generalist actually become say acquainted or familiar? And you know how would you go about doing research as as a generalist in this sort of niche market? Yeah, sure. So um, I think the key trait of any good investor, and uh, I, I'm not, a, I mean, I shouldn't say I'm a good investor, but you know, I've survived so far. Um, the, the key trait is curiosity. Yeah. You have to love to read. You have to be curious, and you have to be, um, you know, always looking for an angle and uh, and and build a build a library in your head of ideas that could not, maybe they don't materialize for a while, 
So the way I approach it is I just spend time reading and I'm just prepared for when something happens. So for example, oil and gas. I had like in 16 years of my life uh, of investing career, I hadn't invested professionally in, in oil and gas until summer 2020 after oil turned negative. Yeah. It was the first time. I was reading about it. I was reading about it. And I'm like, well, you know, I don't like it. I don't like it. But I've spent the time when it was, when it, when it mattered, I spent the time and effort to understand the industry to a degree. And there's a lot of good people. Actually, bizarrely, there's a lot of good people on Twitter uh, that give a lot of information. Uh, I mean, you know, Bison Interest uh, papers, for example, you know, were like better than anything that any uh, Wall Street bank uh, wrote, for example. On, uh, on some topics. So, you know, use the information available, connect to people. There's so many, there's so many, um, I, I found uh, uh, that for, especially for niches, I found there's better knowledge and better access for, to good people on Twitter than in Wall Street. And this is really, really interesting. Um, especially for something like oil and gas and uh, commodities where a lot of people, uh, lost their jobs in the last 10 years and are out of business. Um, Twitter was invaluable. I mean, one example actually is tin. You know, tin is the most exciting commodity for me. I've been going on about tin uh, and, uh, you know, yeah, so, but, but there's, you know, there's a niche community on Twitter called the tin barons. And, you know, there's some great, you know, great people on it. Uh, like uh, Trader Pamplona is you know, the leader of, the um, uh, of, of, of the niche uh, in some way, like he's been sharing knowledge for the last uh, couple of years on the topic. But look, there's no analyst on, in Wall Street, there's no analyst covering tin. So tin was in, um, I mean, I'll, I'll give you the, the, the very quick summary. Tin is a small market, it's a very niche market. I didn't know anything about tin until one year ago. And some friend of mine actually said, uh, uh, oh, you know, there's a, there's a deficit of, in, of tin because Myanmar is a big producer and there's a coup in Myanmar. It's like tin. I've never looked at tin. So I spent time on looking at tin. So how do I approach, how did I approach it? Let's, okay, let, let's do, um, let, let's see how I did it actually. So we start with, uh, because uh, I'm an engineer by background, and one thing I really, really value is first principles. And I, I use first principles in my investing more than anything. So first principles, you start with supply demand. So do a simple analysis, go to Google, see the supply demand of tin. The supply demand was quite simple. There were like 200, 220,000 tons a year. And it was like uh, almost half of it was China, then it was Indonesia, then it was Myanmar and a bit in Australia and uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And um, Indonesia had onshore mining and offshore mining. Their onshore mining was depleting and Myanmar was in a coup. So you basically have, and Tim was uh, like at 15,000 at the time or something. So you, if you have a major, and then demand, and then I'll just touch the demand side. So demand for tin, 60% of the demand goes for solder for semiconductors. So it's a structural growth market because it's the only commodity that actually so much of it goes to technology. It's the thing that sticks your semiconductors together. So, and then you look at how much, how much semi, how much, what's the value of tin on your smartphone? And your smartphone has 0 0.7 grams of tin. And that comes out to be like three cents. So it's like a tiny percentage of your phone's value. So if you think about it, step back and it's like, okay, well, that's a great supply demand picture. And then it's like, oh, that's like, why is only three cents? So like if, if Apple is, so if, if supply goes down 10%, how much is Apple or, you know, or whoever like Taiwan Semiconductor willing to pay to buy tin? If it's 15,000, it's like, well, the answer is it can pay like 10 times more, it's still gonna buy it, right? Because if, if it's like three cents, a three cents a phone and they're making like uh, $30, so they're going to pay like 10 times more. So anyway, so the tin price went up to $40,000. So, uh, so from 15 to 40,000, but also part of that picture was to find 
the producers and you know we identified two producers it was one in australia called metals x and one in the democratic yeah and then alpha min which you know we've been tim barron something alpha moon alpha moon so anyway so we found the two stocks and uh you know that that's actually how i found the tim barons on twitter and you know the the analysis they did was like way better than anything else so, you know, I, I've been, I mean, I'm a long-term holder in both. Um, they've gone up. Remarkably, uh, yeah. Remarkably well, but actually, a, yeah. yeah. And a, AFM took it, had a takeover bit as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's got like, it's in a process, but, you know, I still hold my Metals X because even at current prices, it's making like 30% free cash flow a year for a very strategic metal. It's got a net cash position and, Take away, you know, close your eyes and don't look at the share price. Compare what is trading against other segments. So lithium stocks trade at 10, 20 times EBITDA and uh, uranium stocks trade at 10, 20 times EBITDA. And this is a very scarce commodity that's very strategic and it's trading at three times EBITDA. And... So, you know, I played the rare earths in 2012 and I had the same feeling as like, oh my God, there's only one company back then. In fact, then it was Linus and then it was uh, Molycorp. And it's like, well, they did 10 times by the time we got out and then they collapsed again. But, you know, why would I not hang on to a stock? I don't care about if there's a bear market. I really don't care if there's a bear market on this one. Because why would I sell if it's got net cash and makes 30% a year? Okay, say 10 collapses, I make 10% a year. Oh my God. You know, I'm not going to cry if my price is good. But, you know, the, the way I was, I, I was half joking about something, thinking about supply and demand, about tin. And this is going to sound like a very strange analogy. But commodities is all about supply and demand. And demand sometimes can go through the moon and sometimes it can just stay stable. Yeah. But when you have a supply shock is when you make serious amount of money because you know the, the demand for semiconductors is you know it's going to keep growing strongly but supply is a big thing so i was thinking about this way and it's a very strange way of thinking about it um say you have a hundred guys and a hundred girls in a bar and the guys have to buy a girl a drink to speak to the girl yeah. and and the price of a drink is five five dollars a drink so take away a girl and you have 99 girls and 100 guys. So there's two guys competing for one girl. What's the price of the drink? Ah, it probably goes up six. Take away 10 girls. And there's like 100 guys and 90 girls. The price of that drink goes, you know, from five, it probably goes. So if you reduced, so you reduced supply of girls by 10%, but the price of that drink probably goes like, I don't know, 10. So it doubles. <laughs> and if you take out more than that, well, it, it can become exponential. So, so, yeah. So, sorry, we just cut off. Um, so, yeah, you were talking about how um, when you when when production capacity is constrained and you see demand start to go up, then the price of commodities sort of nonlinearly or exponentially rises, which is correct. Exactly. And I mean, and and take it today to the most important commodity in the world, which is oil, because you know people were getting bearish oil again, and I'm like, guys, here's a very simple fact. I mean. You have a hundred, it's back to our example, you have a hundred million barrels a day supply and a hundred million barrels a day demand simply. And then if you take out two million from Russia, which is what BP is guiding uh, that's gonna happen in the next, uh, in the next month, you've lost 2% of the world's uh, supply. And then you have driving season starting in the US. Why would I be bearish in this setup? I mean, it's actually quite bearish for the market but it's not bearish for oil. So, you know, again, keep it simple shrub. (laughs) It's all about supply demand, put down the numbers and, you know, just that's where they are. Um, So, you know, I I think we're in a pretty bad place uh, commodity wise. And we didn't, we haven't even touched upon, uh, you know, the food side because, you know, food is going to be a problem in the next 12 months for the same reasons. Fertilizers are very much controlled by Russia and Belarus. Um, so it, it's going to be a stagflation environment which can last for it, it could last for years because you know I, I'm expecting this conflict to last unfortunately a long time 
So we could have a stagflationary environment for years. And it's very tough to protect yourself uh, in this environment. That's why it's good to, um, uh, it's good to have different perspectives. And actually, you know, that's why I, I implore people to spend a lot of time thinking, listening from others and learning. And I think on your podcast, I actually listened to Mike Green, um, uh, sorry, uh, Mike Taylor. He's uh, a great guy. And I mean, and actually one interesting fact is when Mike is talking about the market, like he was super bearish. Um, it shows how different people knowing different things may have the same conclusion, but play the market differently. So he was bearish. He was 40% net short. I think when he was on your uh, podcast yeah. and at the same time, I was, you know, 50% long. <laughs> so he was 50% short bearish the market and i was 50 percent uh short 100 well sorry 50 percent hedged but actually long uh but i was long energy and mining because i was bearish tech but i was bullish of, of you know energy commodity so he was he was seeing his buy because he knows the biotech and the side so he was short all that stuff whereas i was just short the nasdaq because uh, that's all I know. <laughs> I was okay. on my other stuff. So it's kind of interesting. Like, that's why, you know, on the education side, that's why, you know, you, your podcast series and others are very important is that, um, uh, you know, it gives different perspective to people and you have to be really open-minded at this point. Got it, got it, yeah. Also, another thing when it comes to commodities and when it comes to thinking through stagflation. So one aspect of stagflation is, inflation and so you know stock inflation is just high inflation and high unemployment at the same time and so when you and so you know a lot of people have been talking about gold and gold miners when it comes to uh when it, when it, when it comes to stagflation and inflation um so you know what, what are your views on gold and gold miners so look um gold usually does very well in stagflation um and gold miners are a sector that whoever traded it knows it's one of the worst sectors to trade. <laughs> because, and I'll tell you my, my view. So right now, I don't actually own any gold. I have, but I have, I have platinum. So I'm playing it via platinum. It's a much smaller market. And I think it's going to give me protection as a precious. Now, um, stagflation is an erosion of value. So you want something that acts as a store of value. And that's why real estate actually does well in nominal terms. Um, and then gold, obviously, because gold was uh, the ultimate store of value. So um, there, there's a, I'm, I'm probably gonna start buying gold at some point, but because I have all that commodity exposure elsewhere, that's why I didn't buy, I haven't bought gold yet. But I'll tell you one experience I've had with gold, which tells me when I have the shrub indicator of timing uh, to buy gold. I'm gonna, I'm gonna trademark that. It's the shrub indicator of timing when to buy gold. So the only time I bought gold physical, physical gold to go and buy physical was in 2008. And it's because I saw my boss who was a very, very smart guy that went up and levered himself 100% to buy gold when shit hit the fan. Uh, he went, it's like gold was 950. He levered himself, which was a lot of money, how he had, I mean, he had a lot of money. He levered himself and bought gold. And me as a, as a young analyst, I'm like, oh my God, this guy knows something. Um, know something as in, you know, this guy's smart and he's doing the right thing. It's like, uh, um, so I went and bought physical at 950, like actual piece of gold. Um, and then gold up went up to 1500. I sold it uh, end of 2009 or something. He kept it, it went to 1800. I felt like I was a complete schmuck but actually it went back to 900. So uh, the lesson of that. Oh, and by the way, by the way, during that period, copper went to the toilet in 2008. 
But afterwards, in 2009, copper massively outperformed gold. So although I made like 50% of my gold purchase, I would have made multiples if I bought copper. Fast forward to 2000, everyone was buying gold. You can guess what the shrub was buying. <laughs> I was buying nickel, tin, copper. I was buying everything but gold. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so will I, do I feel like I need to own gold physical now? To be honest, I actually feel like I should have some physical gold. So it's really not a bad time to be thinking about gold purchases. And people say, oh, you know, but Bitcoin is the new gold, blah, 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 blah. Bitcoin, crypto, JPEGs, monkeys, nonsense. You know, gold is like, we're, you know, we're in the precipice of a world war and you're talking about JPEGs. I mean, geez, man, like talk about being stupid, seriously. You know, we have a, we have a saying on the, you know, on our Twitter feed, right? On the strawberry capital Twitter feed is don't be stupid. <laughs> and you know, when, when you have like, <laughs> you're in the precipice of a gold, uh, you know, of a world war and like, global stagflation and you buying crypto dude 5000 <laughs> years of history you buy gold coins you don't buy like <laughs> and, you know, yeah, I yeah. Was, and let me just tell you this story because I thought it was a complete joke really so I, I was with this private banker a few days ago and uh, it was a very friendly uh, setup so not nothing promotional and the guy was uh, telling me oh how do you think about markets and I told him my view and he said yeah, you know, a lot of our clients are concerned about inflation. So, uh, so they're allocated to equities and also crypto to protect themselves against inflation. And I'm like, what? And I, I just didn't want to continue the conversation. I just left it there. I just, I just I left it that. there. I, yeah, I was like, come on, man. I mean, you're a private banker and you're telling people to buy crypto to protect against inflation. I mean, seriously, talk about seriously let's just say it again talk about being stupid i mean I, I you know i don't like to insult people but you know i'm kind of like because i have uh you know, i don't really have an agenda so i can afford to be a bit of an asshole sometimes if it's gonna save a few people their savings i can swear on your podcast by the way because you're over 18 now I think <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, so um, you can put beep, beeps over it if it if it helps. <laughs> but but um, but you know, like people need to be. You know, I've been humbled many times by the market. You know what I'm saying now, and you know, sometimes I might come out. I don't know that I'm a. I don't know. I, I don't know if I come out as noidal or something. But you know, dude, I've been humbled by the market so many times. I'm humble when I deal with the market. Uh, you know, I respect it. It's like when you swim in the sea and then suddenly there's a big wave and just takes you down. So it's the same thing. You have to respect the market and the economy. So when I hear nonsense by like promotional people, I'm like, are you serious? Do you really believe that? And unfortunately, we've been through, we've been through like the last two years. Um, and, uh, you know, like you're one of the rare exceptions. And there's a lot of good young people on Twitter that have reached out to me. And I'm learning from them as well. Um, you know, people got sucked in into really strange religions that are wealth destroying and capital destroying. And also, if I if I if it was only retail investors, it's also professionals. <laughs> so, so it's like this disease that that you know. It's like the COVID of the asset management industry in some way <laughs> has been like embracing Ponzi's. So, you know, yeah, that's there, why... There are so many of them, though, like especially post-COVID. Yeah, exactly. So, so basically, that, this is why you, know, you need that cleansing and you need that, that thing to come out. And I was actually listening to something very interesting, um, uh, very interesting Beyond Capital Cycles uh, by... Uh, it was one of the co-founders of uh, Marathon Asset Management. You know, he was saying about the capital cycle that this is this usually happens in a in a bubble where you have you know in, in a rising bubble the promoter knows that if he puts one dollar if he raises one dollar of capital he gets back five dollars of market cap 
So what does he do? He keeps raising like a dollar, a dollar, a dollar, a dollar, a dollar, <laughs> until, until, the, until gravity takes over. And this is the SPAC market. The SPAC market is exactly that. Like they were raising like a dollar, marking it up, and then dumping it to a retail and hedge funds. Um, and then the VC market, oh my God. I mean, the VC market is the biggest joke of all of them. It's like, it was like a self, like the VC market was looking at the SPAC market and the SPAC market was looking at the VC market. They were looking at each other and saying, oh my God, you're doing well. Okay, well, if you're doing well, I'm doing well. Just like feeding each other until it just all turning to crap. I mean, I was looking and you know, that's when you also have new actors coming in. The important thing about one thing I always say, which is very, very important to understand is you have to understand the game and, the, and who the players are, who's playing the game and how to play the game. And, you know, the hedge funds were looking at the venture capital market and saying, oh my God, there's a lot of money here. And also ooh, there's no mark to market. There's no mark to market, man. It's great. So they've allocated 200 billion in venture capital in the last two years. Uh, and that 200 billion is now sitting in, you know, Tiger Global, among others, and SoftBank and everywhere. I mean, you know, the marks on that 200 billion, dude, it, it, it's like subprime. I mean, uh, you know, I tweeted out like in 2007, everyone was chasing yield. I remember that. Like everyone was chasing yield and buying subprime, like to make, you know, four or five percent. And now everyone is chasing like uh, crypto for an inflation hedge and venture capital for it. So anyway, so that's where we are. You know, there's excess, yeah, there's excess in the system and they need to clear out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, when it comes to, uh, so, so the other thing that I wanted to discuss is, um, so you also do special sets and just in general, you do a bunch of stock picking as well. So, you know, when you, when you do your stock picking, um, so how do you go about, um, how do you go about picking, you know, which stocks to invest? So, you know, what criteria do you use in order to assess single stocks? Yeah, so, um First of all, I can afford to be concentrated, which is something that, um, you know, the average uh, hedge fund manager can't really be concentrated. Um, you know, very, I mean, you had a few guests, uh, you know, like Cuppy, he, you know, he, he plays the concentrated game very well. Um, so if I find a big theme, like energy versus energy commodities versus uh, uh, short tech i'm gonna make it you know i'm gonna make a basket of that obviously we'll discuss that so put that aside okay so that's the theme and that's gonna be my focus so that's like 50 60 percent of my portfolio you know this is not a hedged trade this is like a trade <laughs> you know long energy mining short tech it's a factor trade it's not a like it's not something you do at millennium <laughs> So that, that's one thing. So on the special sit side, because I used to be a special sits uh, portfolio manager, um, I am very particular. I'm gonna play a few situations and I'm gonna, as, as banal as it's gonna sound, I, I like, I want the sector, I want the stocks to be in sectors that I like uh, and I want them. I want the stocks to have an event and an asymmetry to it, and a downside protection. So, it, actually, in 2000, I was playing a lot of special sits with spacs. I was playing the spacs. You know, I, I, I dude, I, I knew it was a joke. It's fine. It's fine. I mean, you know, the, the event is there. So you play the event, but you you watch the downside because the spacs were actually a great way to play. Special sits because how does this pack work? You know, you there's an empty shell, trades at 10 bucks. Well, you know how they work, but it trades at 10 bucks. And then the promoter puts a deal in. And, uh, you know, he has like three, six months to convince the market that the deal is great to vote the deal through. But for those, that period, you have a put a 10. So what I was doing half of my 2020 uh, was buying things close to the put and see if they ramp up and, you know, a few of them uh, ramped up and, you know, I found a few that I actually really like. One is actually one that Mike Taylor wants was pure cycle. Um, and uh, I actually really liked the story, but I played it from the moment they announced the deal a bit later because I was doing the work on it 
until the vote. And then I was out because, you know, and then I played it through warrants. So, so let me just step back a bit. So the special SID is asymmetry and downside protection. So the SPAC, the unit gives you a downside protection, but the warrants give you a symmetry because the warrants were trading at say two and uh, the strike was 1150. And uh, you know, by the time of the vote, the warrants went to like 18, something crazy. Um, so that was multiples of my capital returned, but I was out, you know, it was done. The trade was done for me uh, for various reasons. There's no point uh, going more into it, but going back to the selection, I built a portfolio of few stocks like that. Uh, and my special sits bucket is going to be like five, six names only. And it's going to be between 15 to 50% of my portfolio. Um, and actually my biggest position this year was a special sits position. And it was Twitter. <laughs> uh, so I've been, um, just to show you again, the asymmetry of the trade. So I love Twitter as, as a product. My favorite, uh, you know, the book that got me interested in investing was uh, uh, One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch. <laughs> so, you know, it was a very Peter Lynchy trade for me. It's like, man, I'm, I'm spending so much time on Twitter. You know, I have, to, <laughs> have to, I have to own some Twitter. But I was long, the, but I found the convertible. So Twitter had a convertible. And it was trading, you know, at 110. So your downside is like 100. So the maximum I would lose was 10. And, you know, the upside was unlimited until 2024. And actually tweeted, uh, and, and, you know, the company was kind of turning around, but it was in the tech sector. So obviously it was going to get hit, but I didn't care because I had my downside protection. So I tweeted out at some point uh, when Twitter became like uh, overly, um, started censoring too much <laughs> its users. I tweeted out that Elon Musk gonna buy is gonna, yeah, is gonna buy a stake in Twitter to protect uh, the free, free speech. speech. Yeah. yeah, because he knows that without free speech, he's not gonna get to Mars, yeah. which actually makes sense. I mean, free speech is what, what drives uh, society. But, uh, so I, but at that time I was long the convertible. Um, and, and this is how the special sit builds up. So you're long the stock, it's a bit sleepy there. So it was, it was a big position, but it wasn't my biggest position. And then suddenly the guy starts, sent that uh, poll. You know, he, did, he sent that tweet about the poll about vote carefully. The, uh, what is it? Should the, he, he, did, he sent like a poll about Twitter before he disclosed Vote carefully, this thing is up. And I was like, dude, he's going to buy a stake. I mean, it's obvious that like, he's going to buy a stake. Elon Musk, yeah. Yeah, he's going to buy a stake. Why is he running a poll about this? So I had some calls on the stock. And then, uh, so I bought calls on it. It's like, ah, oh, it's a punt, but might as well just buy calls. And then he disclosed a stock. He disclosed a stake. Um, so from that point, I was like, well, I know the stock very well. Uh, he sees the potential that I see. And, you know, very, very simple maths. You know, the operating margin of Twitter is 11% and Facebook is 30%. So it's not only just because he loves to tweet. There's actually a, you know, there's actually a lot of operational improvement that could have been done on Twitter. Um, and even the ARPU, I mean, the ARPU of, uh, of Twitter versus Facebook is like ridiculously bad. Um, so I started building the position and, uh, and then lo and behold, you know, he ended up making an offer about offering it. Um, I had like a 15% position at that point. Um, and, you know, the sad part about me is that I got everything right, including this random prediction that he's even like, it's completely random prediction. I mean, <laughs> that he's going to buy a steak like six months ago. And, I didn't make much money out of it. I didn't make that much money because his, his offer was like so low ball. It's like, 
50 board 20. And I honestly thought it was like, dude, I mean, the stock was at 70 like a year ago. So I didn't make that much money. I didn't lose money, of course. So I made some, but it's kind of like the bittersweet aspect of investing that you do, like you put on such a good trade, low downside, so well thought of. And then it's like, oh, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Okay. At least we didn't lose money, but, yeah. but fine. And then you end up making more money on like this, you know, joke, uh, not joke, this cold stock that reported like killer earnings and is up like 20%. <laughs> but, you know, the thing about the special sales portfolio is that um, concentration works. My old boss used to say one thing. That's the first thing I remember is like, watch the downside and the upside will take care of itself. That is the most important thing about special sits. So um, I don't mind being concentrated. I watch the downside. I search for a symmetry. And um, the one thing that I'm not that good at is just keeping it for much longer. So, you know, my timeline, probably my time, because like I have a timeline, I, I think in terms of timelines. So when my timeline is done, I'm kind of like, okay, I'm done. So I'm not the guy who's going to hold Amazon for five years. You know, I'm not that kind of guy. I know that. It's fine. Yeah, got it, got it. Yeah, and to wrap up the podcast, you know, the time has flown by. You know, what do... You know, what, what is your best piece of uh, advice for investors in this market? Um, best piece of advice, listen to your podcasts. <laughs> um, have cash. So I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give a, a few pieces of advice on this because I think it's a very dangerous market. Um, think about you know, watch the trends. Don't fight the trends. I'm going to say a few things. One is don't fight the Fed, right? We've been hearing for 10 years, man, we've been here for 10 years. Don't fight the Fed. The Fed is now telling you, they told you, they told you they will tighten. And we've been buying the market because the Fed balance sheet is going up. Now they're going to shrink the balance sheet. And they told you that they need to tighten financial conditions, which includes bringing down asset prices. So if you think about, um, you know, Soros's uh, theory of, you know, Soros's um, theory of uh, reflexivity. Um, what did I write here? I wrote, so the way I saw the reflexivity is like you put the financial capital in and you change the fundamentals. If you take the financial capital out, you change the fundamentals. So that's QE versus QT. So keep it simple, shrub. Don't fight the Fed. You know, the Fed is taking away liquidity. So it means just you have to be careful that this, we're still above Dude, we're still above, we're, we're still like 20, 30% above the COVID, the pre-COVID levels of the market. I mean, we're not in like, it's not like buying the market in 09 now or March, 2020. Like we're still up. I mean, there's still people sitting on money. So what I'm going to say is one is don't fight the Fed. Number two, don't fight the trend. Um, number three, don't catch falling knives, man. I mean, Unfortunately, this, this piece of advice, don't catch falling knives, is very difficult for people to, to, to listen to me on this one. They will, they will buy falling knives and they will get their hands cut off. But if you do it, do it in small size, <laughs> know what you own, look at the fundamentals because you know I've looked at a few, I'm starting to look at some tech companies. I've looked at a tech company that's down 70% because I was like, oh, maybe it's interesting. It was still trading at like 30 times EBITDA. So I don't care. So look at both fundamentals. Don't buy something because it's down 70%. That's like dumb. You know, the difference between buying something down 80% and 90% is that you've, you've lost 50%, right? 
to go from 80 to 90. So forget it. So don't buy stuff because they're down. It's like, it's like uh, trying to date the ugliest girl in class or something. I don't know. I don't know how to say it. You know, it's, <laughs> that's, that's unfair. You know, that's unfair. She might be a really nice girl. Um, but, you know, just, just spend time to understand what you're going to buy if something is down a lot. Um, um, and lastly, have cash because cash is what's going to save you in a bear market because cash gives you optionality. This is a marathon. It's not a sprint, especially for someone like you, your age. It's a marathon. You need the, the winners from this point are not the guys that, you know, we made the money in uh, long energy, short tech, whatever. The winners, I think, are going to be the ones that come out of this with cash and alive. Because that's when you get the real bargains. You know, the real asymmetries, you always get them at the lows. And it's when people are like given up and like disgusted. And like you, we've seen this so many times, there's so many examples, uh, not, not that long ago, like two years ago or a year ago, there were still asymmetric opportunities. But if you don't have the cash, you know, we're not, we're not like crypto guys that just do like, oh, I bought the dip. I bought the, it. It's like, oh, really? Where did you find the cash, man? Like this Michael Saylor guy, the micro, micro, micro strategy. Micro strategy. Jeez, I'm disgusted to even say his name, but it's like, oh yeah, hodl, buy, buy the dip. It's like, really? Who gave you the money, dude? Where'd you find the money? What, you printed the money? So basically, you want to survive the bear market? Yeah. Have cash, do smart trades, follow the trend, and... Um, and, you, you know, be humble and be ready that what you own is going to go lower. You know, if you thought that, you're, if you thought that Amazon is going to go to, like, uh, you know, if you think Amazon is going to 2,000, it's probably going to go to 1,500. I made it up. But, you know, take the price target you have and put another 30% discount. It's probably where you're going to end up buying it in the end. So, you know, be, um, you know, have the cash. I, I just can't stress it enough. Uh, yeah. And have fun, have fun, you know, like uh, you need to have fun. You know, it's, it's like if, if you're coming in the office stressed and you hate yourself, which I've seen many times, people was like, oh, stressing about this and stressing about that. It means your portfolio is wrong or you don't like what you do or you're doing this for money, which is the wrong reason. So, you know, I love what I do. I come in, if the market's down five, up five, still going to be happy, right? Um, yeah. I'm gonna, so, you know, this is it. You know, we, we, we got to have fun. It's, it, it's it the best job in the world. It's Absolutely. the best job in the world, you know, and and it's not even if, if it's not your job and it's your hobby, it's the, it's the best hobby in the world. You know, the my job is my hobby. So, <laughs> so that's sure. a good place to be. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Shrubbery. It, it, it was awesome talking to you. Thank you so much, dude. Hope we do it again soon. Best of luck. Yeah. Uh... Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.